Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. First off, we need to talk about something. Yes. Both of us are really tired because the Cavs played last night. This episode, when it records, Cavs will have either won or lost finals. But as of right now, Cavs played a really late game game last night. We're both Cavs fans, so we're tired. So bear with us this morning. Thank you. Yeah, you're bringing up a little bit of a sore subject, but that's okay. Whatever. And we have a great episode for you today. Today we are talking with Seth Stevens Davidowitz, and we are talking with him about a book that he wrote last year called Everybody Lies, and it is about big data. I read this book. Fascinating. That's that's all that you got? Fascinating? so, So I didn't actually understand what big data was. I just didn't understand what it was. Read this book, and now I understand what it is. How about that one for a hot take? Wow. All right, all right. I'll tell you what that I That was a little bit I'll more. T- <laughs> oh, my. Um, so so as I was just reading it, you know, I, for, by the way, if you don't understand what big data is, just, just Google it. Um, it's a fascinating subject just about how um, numbers really can control. Yeah, numbers, it, analytics, it, it stuff really like that. And it really controls everything that you can really think of. Yes. With the internet. And kind of the premise behind it is that in real life, we kind of say, the, the premise of the book is, in real life, we say one thing. But our internet internet yeah. data and searches reveal something else completely about us. And so he, he writes this book, and it basically tells the story of literally how how the internet, our preferences, our habits... The things that we we Google on on Google, the things that we do on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these things, they tell patterns about who we are. And that really is who we are because the Internet sees us in all of the moments just like Jesus. Yes, I went there, Caleb. Caleb's looking at me right now like, what an idiot. It's okay because it's true. Now, Caleb. Tell us what our resource of the week is. Well, our resource of the week is two things. Oh, one. Oh, many of you know that I'm a pretty big reader and consumer of content Book and connoisseur or contests, podcasts. And so what I want to do is I want to recommend um, if you kind of want to see everything that I'm Learning about, reading about, listening to. Are you plugging your social media right now? You can hit me up on Instagram. Yep, he is. At Caleb J. Mason. Or I recently started using this other um, network called Kit as well. And that will have a list of all the different books that I have there. Can you explain a little bit of what that is? Yes. It is a list where it will have a description of all my books, the ratings that I've given them, and so on and so forth. Isn't that kind of like Goodreads? No, this is a little bit different than Goodreads. Huh. It's not quite as extensive as Goodreads. Also, if you want to see my stuff on Goodreads, you can check me out there, too. <laughs> also, thanks, Ozzy Dave, Dave Adamson from a couple of episodes ago for um, showing this to me online. I appreciate it a ton. This is some awesome stuff. This has been... Oh, hold on. He's got something else. He's got something else. He's got something else? No, nope. nothing else. This has been your... 
to resources of the week. What are you going to say? We also want to remind you that if you missed this past week's episode with Joseph Sojourner, you need to go back and listen to it as well. It's an awesome interview. And remember, all throughout the month of June, we're doing two episodes a week. One episode on Tuesday, one episode on Thursday. Also, if this podcast has helped you in any way, or if you have some feedback for us, don't forget to leave a rating and write a review on the podcast on iTunes and let us know how we can continue to improve. It's the best way that you can show your support from the podcast and let us know what you're learning about as well. If you have a good book that you're reading, if you're listening to a good podcast, hit us up on social media and let us know. We usually we usually say that at the end, but we wanted to be able to put it at the front end so that y'all could hear it because if you're like me, let's be honest, when the interview's over turning that junk off which is a mistake because then you miss out on some good stuff because then you miss out on the so, good stuff without further ado here's our conversation with seth stevens davidowitz well seth we're so excited to have you on the learner's corner podcast today to talk about your book everybody lies thanks so much for having me you know just as we get started you know i was just kind of curious what made you want to write this book well, I was doing research. Uh, I started, well, I was doing, in my, during my PhD program, I found this tool, Google Trends, which allowed you to see where and when people made certain searches on Google. And I kind of became obsessed with the data set because I had this idea, you know, I've, I've been studying many different areas of social science, and I kind of learned that you couldn't really trust necessarily what people told you. Uh, in surveys or focus groups or traditional methodologies, uh, because people would often try to look good uh, instead of tell the truth. And I thought on Google, and I, I saw on Google that people seem to be really honest to tell Google things that they might not tell other people. And I started researching all these areas where I think the traditional sources were misleading, such as racism and sexuality. And uh, that kind of led to uh, this project, this book project, Everybody Lies. Mm -hmm. No, what, one, one of the big things, and you kind of alluded to it already, is just this idea of big data. Now, I'm not sure, um, some of our audience may not be super familiar with it. Can you just give us a picture of kind of what that is? Well, big data means many things. Uh, big data has a role in uh, allowing cars to drive using artificial intelligence. But I think the corner of big data I write about in Everybody Lies and I know about is how all the information now available thanks to the internet is changing the social sciences. So it used to be that to answer a question uh, in psychology or sociology, you'd run a survey of a small number of people, maybe do an experiment. And I think now you can mine the enormous data sets uh, that people leave as they go through the internet on sites like uh, Google or Facebook. Uh, you saw a little bit of, of this with the Cambridge Analytica crisis. That was Those were people using big data for uh, nefarious, evil purposes. But I think uh, also people are using big data for good purposes to learn about the world and ultimately to improve the world. You know, there's, I think there's kind of this idea, especially whenever it comes to like social media and stuff and how people present themselves is that they almost present like a curated version of themselves like throughout life and on social media or Instagram or Facebook or whatever it might be. However, your book really talks about that the version of themselves that they present is rarely accurate. How did you go about discovering the discrepancy between people's curated thoughts and beliefs and their real thoughts and beliefs and actions? 
Yeah. So, so you, as you as you mentioned, there is this idea uh, that people aren't necessarily so honest on, on social media. If you go on social media, it seems like everybody's always on vacation in Hawaii or uh, doing something really charitable or uh, learning and reading something really profound. And that's one of the reasons, actually, that social media can lead to depression because people feel like their lives don't compare to the lives of others as they see them on social media. And I, I want to look at the data to see how true this is. And you see it so clearly in the data. So if you compare, for example, two magazines, the National Enquirer and the Atlantic Monthly, we know circulation data. The National Enquirer actually sells three times more magazines every year in the United States than the Atlantic Monthly. Three times more people are buying and presumably reading the trashy celebrity gossip magazine, the National Enquirer, relative to the poetic, philosophical, intellectual magazine, The Atlantic Monthly. Uh, but on social media, when people are presenting to their friends, they're 45 times more likely to say they like The Atlantic Monthly than The National Enquirer because everyone wants their friends to think they're so intellectual. And uh, you can compare uh, the cars that people, uh, when, they, when, when people just put a picture of their car, they're far more likely uh, to, uh, to post uh, if they if they own a BMW or a Mercedes, then if they own a cheaper car, and if they stay uh, their hotel, we compare hotels in Las Vegas, Circus Circus, a budget hotel in Bellagio, a luxurious hotel. Uh, they get about equal number of visitors every year, but people are far more likely to set to check in on Facebook at the Bellagio. They they want to impress their friends with how rich they are. So basically, over and over again, you see that. Uh, social media is a distorted picture of people uh, moving in the direction of showing off relative to the truth. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people feel the need to present kind of these false versions of themselves? I don't know. I think it's kind of weird because I think I, I, I want to study this a little bit more because I, I, I wonder if it actually ha improves one's own life to give this false image of oneself. Mm. Uh, I might argue that actually uh, you would gain more friends. Uh, people would like you more if you were more honest on social media. So I think people, you know, I, I, I haven't seen the study, but I imagine, for, for example, if, if you're posting all the time about your fancy, luxurious vacations, a few of your friends might block you uh, because they just are jealous and don't want to see uh, how great a time you're having all the, all the time. If you uh, are a little more humble in your social media posts, uh, your friends may be more likely to uh, want to engage with your posts, to want to uh, hang out with you more. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, th I think it's a, I think, I think it's, it may be a mistake. Uh, I, I found in my own life that I, I, this is not studying big data, mm -hmm. but I tend to be a pretty honest person uh, about, I think I am, maybe I'm, I'm sure I, I, there are ways I distort things, but I tend to, uh, you know, talk freely of my shortcomings. And I found that I think uh, that people tend to like me more when I do that. So uh, I think I think I think people are to a large degree making a mistake by uh, presenting this cultivated, uh, glorious image of themselves on social media. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious what whenever you were doing this research, what was the biggest thing that surprised you whenever you were researching this? Well, just about everything surprised me. So that's one of the things that I talk about is the, the I mean, the value of data. I, I, I think everybody, and this is, I'm as bad at this as everybody, as anybody else. We always 
we very quickly convince ourselves that we know how the world works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frequently the world doesn't work in the way we think it works. So if you had asked me, where is anxiety highest in the United States? I would have said New York City by far and other urban areas. I, I, we tend to think that uh, overeducated intellectuals are unusually neurotic, people like Woody Allen or Larry David. Uh, but if you look at the data, it's not true at all. Uh, anxiety is highest in rural areas in upstate uh, Maine and rural Kentucky, uh, higher, higher in areas with lower levels of education. Uh, so I think, uh, and that just happens over and over again, kind of the, that the world works in a very different way than I thought it works. And then I have a whole section on sexuality and that, mm-hmm. you know, that shocked me because uh, mm-hmm. I think that's an area, you know, the, the books, everybody lies. And it's about how all the information on the internet is really giving us new uh, clues on people when, in areas in which they may distort reality because it's sensitive. And I think no area is that more true than sex. Uh, people are really uncomfortable admitting their true sexual desires and the internet, particularly thanks to pornography has given us uh, vast new amounts of information on human sexuality. And that, that, that was just really shocking because it was totally different than uh, how people present themselves. I'm just curious, you know, just even talking about like sexuality and some of the other stuff that you've covered in the book, like racism, like what, what made you like, what was like your decision-making process for, I'm going to look into like this part about big data or like, I'm going to look into big data about sexuality or about racism and so on and so forth. How did you go about like making that decision process? Well, my idea was that the internet is such a, a revolutionary tool for the study of human nature that it made sense to go after huge topics. So uh, basically anytime there was a topic that people talk about a lot or think about a lot, I said, I'm going to look at internet data and I bet you I'll be able to find something totally new on that subject, something that we didn't previously know. And I think that happened just about every time. Every time I looked at the data, uh, I found something uh, that surprised me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just because the tool is so revolutionary. We just have not had uh, anything like it uh, in, in, in the entire course of human history. There's never been a source to which people have been as honest as they are to Google or to certain websites. Uh, and we've only been able to analyze this data in the past few years. So it really uh, is kind of a remarkable new tool and uh, can give us entirely new subjects, even in areas like racism and sexuality that have been subject to so much study and discussion. Yeah, it really makes me think of like going into a dark room and having like a like a flashlight or like the lights being turned on. It's just so like when you were saying, it just feels so drastic and everything. Uh, the next, or I guess, the next thing that yeah, I just think it's just yeah. Go ahead. Is it just yeah? It's just kind of int- it's just kind of interesting. It's like you know, I live in New York City. Sometimes I'll just be walking down the street, you know, on a you know, Tuesday afternoon, you'll see these people, everyone looks very polished. They have their uh, nice suits on. And it's, 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 it's this contrast between, uh, and, and, I, and, 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 you know, and then I'll go back to my apartment and I'll study, you know, what people are searching on the internet or what people are visiting, sites people are visiting on the internet. And it's such a contrast with how people present themselves. <laughs> it's really, uh, quite striking. Oh yeah. What, what do you think, like for writing this book, I'm sure that it's impacted you in some way. What, what might be one of the two of those ways in which writing the book has impacted you or like changed the way how you live or do things? 
Well, I think it's made me feel better about myself because I've I've always uh, I've always you know been concerned that uh, maybe you know I'm I have I have I have issues or I'm a little weird and then I kind of realized from this book that everybody has issues and everybody's a little weird so that so that kind of made me feel a little bit better I think I, I go through life with a little more confidence a little more security uh, knowing that other people have the same problems that I have and. Uh, the other thing is it does make me a little bit more skeptical of human nature, which is maybe not the best thing because, uh, you know, if, if, uh, knowing that sometimes people are, uh, I think there are, there are two kind of big themes I would say that the internet uncovers. One is the kind of secret weirdness and insecurity that people have. And that, you know, made me feel better and less alone. But another theme is the secret. Uh, darkness and hatred that people have, you know, mm-hmm. to talk about racism and how many people make searches for racist jokes and how these searches predict a lot of uh, outcomes. Uh, and that can uh, make, if you, if you, once you research that, you can become a little more skeptical of people and wonder, oh no, are they secretly judging me mm-hmm. uh, based on my skin color or my religion? Yeah. So just as uh, just as I was reading the book, I came across a couple of data results that you write about in there that I think would be interesting for our audience um, to get to know a little bit. And kind of the first one was that whenever it comes to you know going on uh, dates, you kind of give some advice for how to get a second date with somebody. Can can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, that's. That, that basically, this is uh, some researchers studied uh, a whole bunch of speed daters, and they found that you could predict. They recorded everything they said on the date, and they they found you could predict whether the other person wanted to go on a date with you based on the words you used on the date. And uh, there are little tricks. For example, uh, a man should always let. Uh, a heterosexual man should always uh, let the woman talk about herself. The more the wo- a woman uses I in a date, the more likely she is to agree to a second date. Uh, and um, uh, a man should basically uh, should laugh at women's jokes, uh, show support, think, say things like, that must have been tough, or I know what you mean, uh, ways to kind of uh, connect with a woman on a date. Unfortunately for women, there wasn't that much they could do. The big predictors of whether a, a, a man wants to go out with her is just how attractive she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an attractive woman can kind of just say anything. And an unattractive woman, uh, it doesn't really matter what she says. So that, that's kind of another uncomfortable truth uh, that's revealed in the data. Yeah. And then I guess another one was just kind of the difference between implicit uh, or implicit bias and then hidden explicit bias as well. Yeah, so, so there's a big paradox in the United States, which is that there's rampant evidence of discrimination against African-Americans uh, in jury decisions, in uh, criminal decisions, in uh, police car stoppages. Uh, but white people, the overwhelming majority of white people, of non-black people, don't if you ask them, are you racist, say they're not racist. So how can uh, white people say they're not racist? And yet, clearly, uh, white, many white people have to be acting in racist ways based on the data. And I think the main solution to this paradox 
in the social sciences has been something called implicit bias, which is that you, myself, everybody listening uh, have some implicit negative associations for African-Americans. We're more likely to associate black people with criminal behavior or uh, lazy behavior. And we may not be conscious of these biases, but they can influence our decision making. So so we might be correct. Consciously, we may think we're not racist, but subconsciously we do act in a racist way. But there's an alternative explanation, which is that many white people, not all white people, I do not think I I fit in this category, uh, harbor a real explicit animus towards African-Americans that they might not admit to surveys uh, because people lie to surveys, but uh, that they're very much aware of. So these are the types of people who maybe search for really nasty jokes about African-Americans on the internet or visit nasty sites mocking and making fun of African-Americans. And I argue, based on the data, that that may be playing a bigger role relative to implicit prejudice, uh, because uh, the frequency with which people visit these nasty sites or search for these nasty jokes is much higher than I would have guessed. And it does seem to have predictive power to correlate with a lot of the negative behaviors that we see, such as places where African-Americans are paid less or uh, less likely to be hired or more likely to be stopped by police. So my argument is that explicit prejudice, uh, even though it, it, from not not necessarily the majority of white people, but a sizable minority of white people, plays a a bigger role in prejudice than we realized. And implicit prejudice, the subconscious prejudice is that everybody might feel uh, may may actually play a smaller role. Mm -hmm. You said something a couple of minutes ago that just really made me curious. You know, you talked about you know, for this one, and even, you know, talking about um, for the attractive versus unattractive females, about it just being uncomfortable truths. And I think most people, you know, they, they, if it makes them feel uncomfortable, then we're going to try to avoid it as much as possible. Well, why? Like, why is it important for us to continue to pursue these uncomfortable truths, even if they're ugly? Yeah, I mean, that's my personality. I think some people shy away from these. I always... Uh, leapt towards these uncomfortable truths. Uh, it's just a, a, a personality. I, but that said, not everything in the book is yeah, it's uh, not depressing all <laughs> or uncomfortable. There are some things that yeah. are, are, yeah, are good. You know, I say that attractive, that, you know, that for a woman, the attractiveness, uh, how physically attractive men find uh, you is a big factor in your ability to get a second date, which may be an uncomfortable truth, but a uh, maybe more pleasant truth that I found through pornography data is what men consider attractive has much more variability than we're usually told. We're usually told that a certain type of woman uh, is, you know, is a, a thin woman, a big breasted woman, maybe a blonde woman is attractive and other women are less attractive. And what you see with pornography data is that's not true at all. There's huge variation in the types of women that men find attractive, including many, many men who uh, exclusively watch pornography of overweight women or even obese women. Uh, so I think, you know, while, while one's attractiveness, uh, it's uncomfortable that one's attractiveness as a woman plays such a big role in her romantic success. It's also true that uh, 
there are that there is great variability in uh, what men find attractive, and no matter what you look like, there are some men, uh, a sizable number of men, who find you the most uh, attractive possible type. I, I, I say based on the data, I think the best dating strategy uh, is to have multiple to uh, cast your your uh, your net widely and not take rejection personally. So uh, you know, if if you get rejected by someone, don't assume that that means that you're unattractive to all uh, people of the gender you find attractive. You may, you, you know, there are, no matter what you look like, I guarantee based on the data, there are plenty of human beings out there uh, who are attracted, not only are attracted to, would be attracted to you, but find your type uh, the most attractive possible. And that doesn't matter what you look like based on, you know, the, the data that I've seen. Uh, you know, you could have missing limbs or, be three foot tall or be, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, anything, uh, you know, no hair, uh, you know, green hair, red, (laughs) red hair, purple hair, whatever qualities you have. uh, There are people out there who fantasize about, about uh, just your type. One of the big things that, you know, I could tell from just reading the book, and obviously it comes into play with big data as well, is just your skill at pattern recognition. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, have, like, do you apply or do you apply any um, good strategies that it concerns pattern recognition and finding patterns? Do I, do I what? I didn't do, hear the do you have... Do you have any good strategies as it concerns pattern recognition, or is it just pretty straightforward? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, I mentioned some of them in the book. I try to, I try to highlight some of the some of the tools. One of the things I say is, is I think you're right that you know, I think pattern recognition. Everybody does pattern recognition, uh, whether you're a data scientist by profession or not. Uh, you try to note correlations in everyday life and try to interpret them. I think, uh, you know, you can get better if it, you, I, I talk about some pitfalls in the book, you know, distinguishing correlation versus causation, making sure your sample size is big enough. Uh, so you can train your mind to avoid false patterns. I think the big, bigger threat, the, I think the bigger, the, the big skill in pattern recognition is probably knowing, eliminating the patterns that are false uh, positives. So frequently we see patterns that are meaningless and consider them instead uh, cre- containing information. So learning how to uh, uh, throw out the meaningless patterns you have uh, is probably the biggest skill you can uh, develop in improving your uh, ability to make sense of the world in a statistical way. How do you go about recognizing some of those false patterns? Well, uh, one thing is to understand uh, that we tend to leap to conclusions very, very quickly. So if you see, uh, you know, that, that would be kind of similar. If, 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 if you get rejected three times, uh, you may think, but if you, we're just talking about dating, mm-hmm. if you get rejected three times, you may try to, you know, you may try to say, what did I do those three times that led to rejection? But three, three rejections is really not enough to... Uh, draw any conclusions. You need gotcha. uh, tens or, or or hundreds of rejections before you can really uh, see these patterns. So one big uh, big big skill is to 
to not jump to conclusions uh, after uh, one or two or three times, uh, mm -hmm. after something happens one or two or three times. Another important one is to distinguish correlation versus causation. So uh, if, uh, if every time you socialize, you're in a good mood, you may think that socializing is the key to causing you to have a good mood, but it could be that you tend to socialize because you have a good mood rather than uh, socializing causes the good mood. It could be the reverse causation in that case. So you always want to be thinking, is there an alternative explanation uh, for the pattern that, I, that I've noticed? Mm -hmm. how, how can kind of the average person use big data? Well, uh, that's actually the theme of my next book. So oh. <laughs> uh, I'm researching there we go. As we <laughs> but one uncomfortable, one uncomfortable truth I discovered, you know, I have in this book all this material on very, very important topics. I, I, I undeniably important topics. I study mm -hmm. self-induced abortion, and I, I really think that there's a a, a large number of Americans that are seeking out self-induced abortions now in places where it's hard to get an abortion. I talk about child abuse uh, and really how child abuse can rise during a recession, even if it's missing the official data. And uh, and then when I looked at what people highlight in the books and also the, the emails they got from people. And all anybody seemed to care about was how can I use this data to help myself? Mm. Uh, so I think... Uh, People tend to be a little more self-absorbed than they sometimes let on, and uh, that's I, I'm using that information uh, in market research to uh, as the theme of my next book. Cool. Uh, well, you already got me eager for the next book, Seth. <laughs> um, just just as we're getting yeah. ready to conclude, we always have a couple of questions that we just love to ask people. The first one is, what is something that you've started doing recently, either personally or professionally, that is helping you a lot right now? Uh, let's tell you this personally or professionally. I'm helping. That's helped me a lot. Uh, oh, well, this is kind of obvious, but I started using to-do lists uh, for the first time in my life, and mm -hmm. that has helped, helped me a lot. I used to not use to-do lists and just kind of wing my days, and now I am much more structured in my days, and I'm getting more, more stuff done. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then the next one is, how, how do you learn best? Whenever it comes to you trying to learn something to the best of your ability, how do you go about doing that? I'm a big reader. Uh, in college, I never, I frequently skip classes because when I, I, I really can't pay attention to lectures or people speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, so I need to read the textbook or read the articles. Uh, kind of at my own pace. So, uh, in general, I I, I spend a lot. Of, I spend mo most of my day, I would say, reading. Gotcha. All right. What What have you read recently that's been really good? Well, that's an that's another area where uh, I, that is an area where I'm not very honest. I tend to lie about what I read because usually <laughs> what I read is cheesy self help books. And I feel like as an intellectual, as a serious intellectual, it's unbecoming of me to, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I get, you know, I'm also very database and all about, you know, mm -hmm. rigor. And but then I, I find myself over and over again just reading these books that have no data but are just really inspiring, and I just get so excited. Uh, so, uh, 
you know, um, I'm not gonna. So yeah, I, I, you're good. But my my respect, my more respectable <laughs> picks. I, I I read uh, Steven Pinker's book on Enlightenment Now. I thought was just excellent. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, really uh, important book about how much the world has improved in recent years and why it's improved. Uh, I read this book Johan, by Johan Hari called Lost Connections. Uncovering the real cause of depression. Uh, I just mm-hmm. found I found that book uh, very very interesting. Uh, it's kind of uh, I would say one. It argues I think fairly convincingly that antidepressants aren't as effective as people say, and lifestyle is more important than people say in uh, triggering depression. So. Uh, I found I found that book very interesting as well. Gotcha. And then you've probably already alluded to it a little bit with your uh, with the book that you're currently learning. But what are you learning right now? Yeah. So that's exactly. I'm <laughs> basically researching uh, uh, how you can use big data to improve your life. And I'm not. You know, I, I'm actually in the frustrating part where I'm. Uh, you know, going down a lot of False roads, but one of the things I'm I'm doing is interviewing a lot of people in the, the quantified self movements. These are people who uh, rigorously keep track of everything that happens in their life. It's it become easier now with some of the apps on phones, uh, but there are some people who I think are are really good at uh, making sense of their personal data and really improving their lives uh, based on this data. So I'm talking to people who uh, you know figured out that if they drink a certain number of uh, hours before going to sleep, they're going to have to wake up and, 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 and pee. And they figured out exactly what, what the hour was when this will happen. Or people who realize that whiskey triggers, uh, health problems for them. So lots of people who have, uh, by, by recording everything that happens to them, uh, made improvements in their lives. Cool. Well, Seth, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. If people want to buy the book from you or buy the book or um, continue to learn from you, where's the best place for them to do that? Well, they can just Google uh, Everybody Lies book. Uh, That's probably the best way to find it. And it's by Seth uh, Stevens Davidowitz. They're probably not going to remember my my name to Google that. (laughs) So probably just should Google Everybody Lies book. Everybody Lies Seth also would be a to find the book awesome well thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today yeah thanks so much for having me okay todd since you weren't able to be a, a part of this interview again tell me what was one of your takeaways from my conversation with seth listen i was probably doing something way cool like i don't know sitting at starbucks drinking coffee and doing just not hanging out with you. So, win for me. Sorry, Seth. Anyways, <clears throat> so I did have a big takeaway, and, and it was kind of fun being able to edit that, because, by the way, I still I still, still edit the podcasts. Don't get paid for it. Um, anyways, so I edited it, and it was kind of fun to be able to listen to it just in a, in a raw way. And uh, the, so the big takeaway that I had was... For one, I'm never going to use computers or the internet again. And two, I think that in the future, like, okay, like if you were like me when you first listened to this or when when I first read the book, you're like, literally, I'm never going near a computer again. Like, just this is not happening. 
But I think that whenever we start to dig into what's what's going on, I actually think that there's a lot of ways that we can use this stuff in business and in church. Like, I just think there's tons and tons and tons of ways that it can be used. And I think that you can use it in, in good ways that aren't creepy, like some of the stuff they're talking about with, like, internet stuff. I just think that this is something that is, it's only going to get bigger. It's only going to get more efficient. And I think there's a lot of great uses for it. I also think there's a lot of ways it can be abused and a lot of ways that it can, can go south. But yeah. overall, I think I think this is a cool thing. It's a tool to be used, not something to be feared. Yeah, and to me, it really just reminded me of the importance of integrity. Yeah, uh, yep. Just what you do in private yep. is who you are in public. Boom, put that as a quote, Caleb Mason. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, we have a great episode for you next week. Next week, we are talking with Kate O'Laughlin, and we're talking with her about a subject that is very near and dear to Todd's heart. Caleb, we're getting, like, all sorts of accents now on the podcast because Kate isn't from America. She's from England. That's all I got. We're going to talk with her about the science behind talent and measuring talent and figuring out the best talent as it comes to your team. And so it's a really fascinating conversation, and that's going to happen next week. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Google Play, Stitcher, or for those of you who listen on our Simplecast link or via Facebook whenever we post the link. Because we know you're out there. Thank you for that as well. If this podcast has helped you in any way, the best way that you can help us is by leaving a rating and writing a review on the podcast on iTunes. It expands us, and so we become more noticeable on the iTunes charts and stuff like that. Also, let us know what you're currently learning about. Let us know what you learned from this episode. Let us know a book that you're reading or a podcast that you're listening to. Hit us up on Instagram at The Learner's Corner or on Twitter at Learner's Podcast. We would love to continue to learn from you as well. Hit us up on the gram. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Until next time, my name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Hickson. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. This is y'all.